understand the distinction between rewards and salvation, rewards and a gift, and understand that inheritance has two different aspects to it and how you use the idea of inheritance to encourage us, to motivate us, to stimulate us, understanding that there is a reason and a purpose for our spiritual growth today is in preparation of how we'll be used in eternity. Now, Father, we pray that you'd help us to focus and concentrate this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are studying actually in First Peter 3, but we're not going to be there except just as a kickoff point because as we go through the Scripture, what I like to do in when we come to especially certain key terms, and in First Peter the idea of inheritance goes all the way through this epistle because it's related to suffering. Why must a believer have uh, overcome in suffering by the word of, word, word of God? Because it is preparing us spiritually. It prepares our character. It builds uh, in our souls uh, spiritual uh, capacity for righteousness to prepare us to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity. That's the focal point. We have been studying this in terms of inheritance, so tonight we're going to look at the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that inheritance can be uh, can be uh, earned and it can be lost as well. So there's always that, that warning against failure. The problem that we run into is that many of these passages are taken out of context by, especially within the Calvinistic framework, uh, Reformed theology and especially Reformed soteriology, the five points of Calvinism, which come under the the, um, acronym of TULIP. And the P in TULIP stands for the word perseverance, the idea of the perseverance of the saints. And under a lordship salvation view, Perseverance doesn't mean that Christ perseveres in keeping us. Now, there are some Calvinists in history who have taken it that way, which means their understanding of perseverance is more along the lines of eternal security. That was how Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder and first president of Dallas Seminary, understood the P and Tulip. But there's a much larger segment, especially today, due to the influence of a number of, of prominent uh, prominent Calvinistic uh, Bible teachers like R.C. Sproul and uh, uh, John MacArthur and others that uh, look at the P, meaning that if you as a believer do not persevere in obedience and if you fail and you go into a backslidden state and you don't repent and recover, then that would indicate not that you lose your salvation, but that you didn't have the right kind of faith because in their view, faith, saving faith is a gift. So you didn't have the right kind of faith. And so you weren't ever truly saved. You had a false faith in Christ. And that is a view that they teach that a person can have a false view, a false faith in Jesus that's not a saving faith. And they use some uh, examples primarily from uh, John chapter 2 where uh, the many Jews believed on him because they saw his miracles during the first uh, Passover when he was in Jerusalem. And that it, then it says that, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. But that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not they were saved. It has to do with the fact that they, even though they had accepted him as the Messiah, they still thought that uh, that he was going to bring in a political kingdom, so they were still confused. 
uh, about the role of the Messiah. And that doesn't have anything to do necessarily with, with personal justification. So they take that and they extrapolate and they say, see, uh, a faith that's based on signs and wonders is an inadequate faith. The problem with that is John writes his gospel and he says at the end in John twenty thirty one that these are written, these what? Well, if you go back to John, uh, to the previous verse, uh, what you come to understand in John 20, uh, 30 is that in that verse, John says that Jesus did many other signs than these, but these are written. These signs, and there are eight signs in the Gospel of John. These signs are written that you might believe. So the Bible clearly states that, that faith based on signs is, can be saving. It's not some kind of lesser, diluted, inadequate, non-saving faith. So there are a lot of problems with the Calvinistic view, this perseverance view of salvation that we call lordship salvation. And in lordship salvation, they believe that all inheritance, all rewards go to all believers and that there's not a distinction. They would also say that all believers are overcomers, not understanding that there's a difference there, that overcomers are believers that overcome the world because that's how the term is used in relation to Jesus. In John chapter 16, Jesus said, I have don't be afraid because I have overcome the world. And it's a perfect tense verb there, meaning that before he went to the cross where he dealt with sin, he had already had victory over or overcome the world. That had to do with how he lived his life. How he lived his life is not part of what he did to pay the penalty for sin. There's a difference between spiritual life and salvation or justification. So there's some critical issues here in how these things are understood, and a lot of believers are confused over these things. You often hear this when they you hear somebody say, well, uh, talking about somebody, usually somebody who's committed some sin or they've done something, sometimes it's a Hollywood star, sometimes it's the president of the United States, uh, you never know, and they say, well, that person just can't be saved, just look at their life. That's what a lot of folks said about President Clinton, still say that about President Clinton. Look at what he's done. He's lied. He's committed adultery. He's done all of these different things. How can he possibly be saved? Well, the pastor of First Baptist Church of Little Rock, when Bill uh, Clinton was a governor of Arkansas, uh, was a solid doctrinal teacher and Bible teacher, and he had uh, several conversations with President Clinton about his belief in Jesus Christ as his Savior, and I even read about this in an article in either Time or, or Newsweek, and it was very clear, according to w. Vaught, Dr. W. O. Vaught, who was a pastor of the church at that time, that Bill Clinton was a believer. He clearly understood Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sins. So it doesn't matter what sins, what failures, how he may uh, fail over the course of his spiritual life. Scripture says, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior then you are saved because of your possession of Christ's imputed righteousness. You're not saved because of what you do or what you don't do, and your salvation isn't confirmed by what you do or what you don't do. Our faith is not in our perseverance, but our faith is in the promise of God and the character of God and his ability to to keep us. And that's what Peter talks about in, in this same passage. So, if, but inheritance, that's the issue of the warning passages in Hebrews. That's the issue of many other warning-type passages in the New Testament. Inheritance 
can be lost. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't spend eternity in heaven, but it means that we don't receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. We enter heaven yet as through fire. So this is what we're covering as we are developing our doctrine of inheritance over the last couple of weeks. So the passage in First Peter is talking about the fact that God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The term living hope focuses on the future. Verse 4 says we're born again. Uh, we've been born again to an inheritance. And that inheritance is ascribed by three words in the Greek. It's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. And it is reserved, it's put on reserve in heaven for us. That's going to bring in an important aspect to this doctrine. Who are kept? You, meaning believers, and all believers are kept by the power of God through faith. We're not kept by our own power. We're kept by the power of God, and once we trust in Christ as Savior, then we are justified, and we can never lose that. And that salvation, which here we'll see is phase three, will be revealed in the last times. So we saw another connection to this in Titus 3.7, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs, So there's a potential for inheritance. It's not guaranteed here. Should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we begin our study of of the doctrine of inheritance, and we've gone through the first three or four points, and we stopped last time under point point four. So this time I'm going to take up at point number five. Inheritance was given positionally, or potentially, that's that idea of, of inheritance that we realize only on the basis of obedience, on the basis of grace, but the realization and enjoyment of the inheritance was a reward of obedience. Salvation or justification is a gift, for by grace you have been saved. There the word refers to phase one. Uh, salvation, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. A gift is a gift. It's not a reward. Reward is something that is given for meritorious behavior. So rewards are given on the basis of what we do. Salvation is given on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. So there's a distinction between salvation or justification as a free gift and uh, inheritance as something that comes on the basis of obedience, on the basis of our walk with obedience. So we want to look at this like we've been doing, going back to the Old Testament where the uh, concepts of of inheritance are laid out for us, and we'll start uh, start there. So last time we looked at Abraham. We looked at Abra- how Abraham was justified by faith, in Genesis 15:6, and that that verse is not talking about his belief in context, his belief of the promise of God that he would have numerous heirs that would come uh, through himself and Sarah, not through uh, Eliezer, his servant. And many people misunderstand that because they don't look at the Hebrew. In fact, that just this last week, somebody was asking me a question about somebody, what somebody else taught, and they said, but listen to this or go read what he says about this. And it was about Genesis 15:6. And this individual had said, see, this was Abraham's belief in the promise that his seed would come not through Eliezer, but 
through Sarah. And that's, that misses the point. As I pointed out last time, there's a verb tense shift in verse 6. And, and, and that's a break in the narrative. It goes, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, which is a, called, a, it's a use of about four cal imperfects. And then it shifts to a cal perfect in verse 6. And that shows you that it's shifting. The author is saying, now remember something that, so when you look in your Bible, everybody in this church ought to have a parenthesis around Genesis 15:6 because it's a parenthetical note saying, now remember, Abraham had already been justified by, by faith. And that's referring back to his original justification, which occurred before, prior to uh, God's promise in Genesis chapter, chapter 15. So we focused on the inheritance that was promised to Abraham, but its realization when we came to Genesis chapter, chapter 22, that his inheritance, the realization of that, came as a result, God says, because of your obedience. And that's part of the promise because God said in Genesis 15:1 to Abraham, he said, I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Reward is something given for the basis of, of obedience. So now we're under this next point that inheritance is given, but it's not realized. It's given on the basis of grace, but it's not realized until we obey him. There's conditions placed on it. Now, what we're going to see is there's two categories of inheritance. That's what, which applies to every believer, which, where God is our inheritance and that which is distinct that is related to our spiritual growth and our spiritual maturity. But we're going to see this same, uh, kind of distinction made in the Old Testament. That's what I'm laying the groundwork for under this particular principle. So what we want to do is look at a couple of examples to understand that in the Old Testament, the promise of the land was given uh, to Abraham as an additional blessing beyond his salvation. The same thing is true for the Exodus generation, that here you had a generation of, of people, the majority of which were justified, the majority of which were believers, and we're going to have to establish that because there are a lot of people who want to think that because they failed to enter the land that they weren't saved. And maybe you heard that. But that, too, comes out of the allegorical interpretation of Reformed theology. In Reformed theology, the idea was that Canaan or the Promised Land represented heaven. And how many times have you heard in Negro spirituals or you've heard in other, other things this allusion to crossing the Jordan and the, to enter into heaven? That dying we cross the Jordan. It's used in an allegorical sense. But that's not how it's used in the Old Testament. Crossing the Jordan was crossing a literal river to go into the land that God promised to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. It's not going into heaven. Canaan and entering into the promised land is not used typologically or allegorically in the Bible to refer to going into heaven. But that is how it is used in numerous Reformed theologies, and it's used that way in some hymns, which, of course, we don't sing in this church. And um, it was even part of the dying statement of Thomas Jonathan Jackson, otherwise known as General Stonewall Jackson, when he was shot 
accidentally by friendly fire at the Battle of Chancellorsville. His dying words had to do with crossing over the river and lying in the shade of the tree. He was a convinced and confirmed Presbyterian. He taught Sunday school every Sunday afternoon to the slaves on his plantation. He, he was a, a, an evangelist, and he was a strong refor- believer in Reformed theology. And so when he's talking about crossing over the river there, he's using that also in an allegorical sense because he knows that he's, he's, he's about to die. So we have to look at what the, what the Bible teaches here, that Canaan is not heaven. Crossing the Jordan is not an allegory for crossing from this life into heaven. And one of the things that we have to understand is that the Bible makes it very clear that most of the Exodus generation were justified believers, even though they were, became disobedient, rebellious believers, and they, they, they lost their inheritance. They lost their inheritance. They jeopardized it by their disobedience, and they weren't able to enter the land. That doesn't mean that they were all unsaved. How do you know that? Who were the only two people that were allowed to enter the land and realize their inheritance? Joshua and Caleb. We'll look at that in just a minute. Well, what about Moses? Did Moses lose his salvation? Does that mean that Moses wasn't saved? Because he didn't enter the promised land? Not at all. See how their theology just breaks down once you start looking at things? Uh, Aaron didn't make it into the promised land. Does that mean that Aaron doesn't make it into heaven? No. Miriam didn't make it into the promised land. Many, many others didn't make it into the promised land. Not, it doesn't mean that they're not going to make it into heaven. It meant that they didn't realize the blessings of the inheritance because they failed to obey. And the only two that were obedient out of that whole generation who were therefore qualified to, to fully experience their, their inheritance were Joshua and Caleb. So first of all, what we want to do is establish this principle here on this slide that most of the Exodus generation was saved by faith alone in the Messianic promise, not just in some vague promise that God would save them, but they had an understanding based upon promises from Genesis 3.15 up through Genesis 49 when uh, Jacob is pronouncing prophecies over each of his sons and the tribes, and he talks about that the, from the, that the uh, uh, scepter would not pass from the tribe of the Lion of Judah, and that Judah would, would be the tribe from which this ruler would come, the Lion of Judah. So that they had a, they, they had an understanding of this seed that would come that would provide redemption for people. And as you move through the Old Testament from Genesis on the way through Malachi, that promise became a little more clear, a little more clear, a little more clear, so that uh, by the time you get into the New Testament, when Jesus is born, eight days later when he was uh, presented and dedicated at the temple, there's this really, really old guy there named Simeon who's been hanging around because he read the Old Testament and he understood that the Messiah was about to come and he had prayed to God to allow him to see the Lord's anointed, to see the Messiah. So there clearly was enough information to give him the time. 
and the time frame, and he's waiting. And there were others later, in G- as we've seen in our study in Matthew, when, when Jesus showed up, people would see the miracles, he would heal the blind, he would heal the lepers, he would heal those who were crippled, and they would say, could this be the Messiah? Because they understood that these were credentials, messianic credentials indicated by the Old Testament. So there wasn't just a vague promise. It was uh, became more and more specific as time went by. So the Exodus generation is saved because they understood the messianic implications of what was going on, especially in terms of the Passover. Now, let's just look at a couple of things that are said about this generation in Exodus. In, in Exodus, Exodus 4.22 and 23, uh, God is giving instructions to Moses. And he says, you will say unto Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. What he's saying here is the nation corporately is his firstborn. He under, God is addressing them in terms of the fact that that there is firstborn not because every single individual was justified, but most of them were. Then we get into Exodus 4.31, just a few verses later, as Aaron and Moses have now gone to the Israelites and performed signs and wonders, demonstrated their credentials, and what was the response of the people? They said, oh, get out of here, Moses. We, we know you. You killed that Egyptian. Go on. Is that what they said? That's not what they said. Exodus 4.31, and the people believed. The people believed. They are believing the promise of God to deliver them temporally because they're already these people are already justified. And they believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, that he looked upon their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. We're going to see this again and again throughout uh, Exodus is how the people worshipped. They also really rebelled horribly rebelled, went into idolatry, had Aaron build a golden calf form. They they really were apostate at times and extremely rebellious. This is why they didn't realize their inheritance. And we get to Exodus chapter 12, uh, verse verse 7 and, and 8, uh, when we see the, the instructions for the Passover, the tenth plague, that, that God would... Uh, sent death in Egypt to the firstborn, but the solution to survive was the application of the blood of the lamb to the doorposts. And they, uh, the instructions in verse 7, they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses, wherein they shall eat it, and they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, unleavened bread, with bitter herbs they shall eat. This is a picture of trusting in God's deliverance from death and the application of the blood. Then we go on from there and in chapter, later on in the chapter, when, uh, the, uh, when God passed over, what's the response at the end of verse 27? The people bowed the head and they worshiped. And then they went away. They left Egypt. And verse 40, uh, verse 31 of chapter 14, we read, And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did among the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Again and again it says they believed. That's the condition for salvation. And then in Exodus 19, when they're all before the Lord at Mount Sinai, and they're given instructions as to what they must do before they listen to the Lord, give them the, the, the law, the commandments. The people answered and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
they are going to be obedient, which indicates that they understand the issues and they have, they're already, they're already saved, they're already justified. The New Testament treats them as saved and justified also. We get into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a great passage, and at the beginning, talking about the Exodus generation, Paul writes, they were all baptized or identified into Moses by the cloud and by the sea. The cloud is a reference to the Shekinah glory, the presence of God leading the people uh, through. It was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. And the sea, that is the mark of their, their departure from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea on dry land. And they did all. Note that word all. That's an important word. They all, they all ate the same spiritual meat. When did they do that? We just saw that in Exodus chapter 12. They ate the lamb, which represented the Lord Jesus Christ on that first Passover. They did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, remember this verse. Today is Thursday night. Sunday's coming. Guess what our passage is going to focus on on Sunday morning? It's that great passage in Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus starts talking to Peter about on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there's a lot of debate over whether he's talking about Peter and the wordplay with uh, Petros and Petra. And is Jesus referring to Peter? Is Jesus referring to uh, Peter's statement that Jesus is the Messiah? Or is he referring to something else? And remember, we studied this going through in Samuel about how God is viewed as the rock. That was one of the alternate names for Yahweh, was he's the rock. And so here this is applied to Jesus. That rock was Christ. Well, guess who Jesus is referring to when he says, on this rock I will build my church. I'll let you know for sure on Sunday morning. Then we get to Hebrews. Now, my last point there is, but is ten four all so all are baptized, all ate, all drank, but with many of them God was not pleased. So there's a contrast between the fact that they're all saved, but there many of them displeased the Lord. In fact, all but two. And then in Hebrews eleven twenty nine and thirty, that great hall of faith chapter. Uh, the writer of Hebrews treats them as justified. By faith they pass through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the uh, Egyptians assaying uh, to do were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about for seven days. So, so there they are a justified generation. The first verse refers to the Exodus generation. The second verse refers to their their descendants, a conquest generation. Okay, so what we've seen is that Exodus treats, and both Exodus and the New Testament passages treat that Exodus generation as justified believers, that that the vast majority of them, if not all of them, were, were justified. But they failed to realize their inheritance. And that, that's the pattern, is that there are many who are justified, many church-age believers are justified, but they don't 
they are not going to realize their inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ. They can lose that because they don't understand things like confession of sin. And so they live their life mostly in carnality, walking according to the flesh and not walking according to the spirit. They don't understand the importance of, uh, of knowing the word and living the word. They're just glad they're going to go to heaven, and they bought into this lie that as long as I'm in heaven, I don't care whether I'm in a hovel or in the ghetto or whether I'm in some mansion. No, our goal is to glorify God to the maximum, and that is realized at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not that we're trying to get anything, but that we want to be prepared and properly uh, properly uh, uh, motivated, prepared, and and uh, developed in our spiritual life so that we can rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom and on into heaven. But there were only two people that actually realized that inheritance. Of the two or three million Jews that came out of Egypt, and that is a pretty substantial number, there were only two, not even Moses, made it into the promised land. The closest he got was on top of uh, Mount Mount Nebo uh, on Pisgah, and God supernaturally allowed him to see all of the uh, of the land because it says he could see all the way up to Galilee. This last year when we were there, even though it was crystal clear, and we had a remarkable view from Mount Nebo across the Jordan, and we could see the high ridge line where Jerusalem was in those white stone buildings in Jerusalem were reflecting the morning sun, which was at our back. And, and you could see the glint of the sun off of the steeple on the, on the Church of the Ascension on the Mount of Olives. And it was just magnificent. But you couldn't see all the way to Galilee. You could see towards Galilee. You couldn't see all the way to the Mediterranean. But God allowed Moses to be able to see all of the promised land. This is what you could have had. But you disobeyed me. You violated my commandment when you struck the rock out of anger the second time. And because of that disobedience, you lost the right to enter the land. And so that doesn't mean that Moses didn't get to go to heaven, but that he didn't realize an earthly part of his inheritance. <clears throat> the only two that did of the were Caleb and Joshua. Now, you remember the story in, in Numbers, when Numbers 18, when uh, God gave them instructions to spy out the land. He did not say, this is where literal hermeneutics is so important. He didn't say, go see if you can conquer the land. He said, spy out the land that I'm going to give you. There's a promise there. I'm going to give it to you. Go check it out. Do a recon. The recon isn't to see if you can do it. The recon is to see how you're going to do it and what the issues are that you're going to face once you invade the land. And so they went in and they came back and they saw these fortified cities and they saw giants in the land and they saw a lot of people. And ten of them came back and they said, the circumstances are overwhelming. We just can't do it. And two of them said, Doesn't, it's not up to us, it's up to the Lord. And we can trust the Lord, and God will give us the victory. And that was Caleb and Joshua. And because of that, God said, nobody's going to go into the land. They all sacrificed their 
uh, inheritance at that point. And God said the only two that will enter the land will be Caleb and Joshua. And so it was 40 years later when Caleb and Joshua are in their 80s that they finally realized that temporal part of their inheritance and entered into the land. So in Numbers 14.24, God said, But my servant Caleb, because he has a what? A different spirit in him and has followed me fully. See, the others didn't follow him fully. Uh, Caleb and Joshua did. He followed me fully, and I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it, shall possess it. So Caleb is distinguished. And then Joshua also uh, was distinguished. In Joshua 14.8, Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. The brethren who went up with me is a reference to those ten wimpy spies that went who didn't have the spiritual courage to trust God to vanquish the enemy. So he said, My brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. And so they, that's the trouble. When you have bad leadership, it causes people to, to, to fear. We saw a great example of this just recently when the, uh, uh, when, when the uh, Senate Majority Leader, uh, a Republican, came out and said, man, we're just probably not going to win on this Iran uh, nuclear treaty thing. Uh, we're going to try hard, but we're not going to do it. That's not a leader. A leader comes out and says it's going to be tough. We need to work harder. Let's do it. Let's overcome the obstacles. Let's get better organized, but we are going to defeat this thing. That's what a leader does. Joshua and Caleb were leaders, but the other ten were like Mitch McConnell, and they caused the people's hearts to be discouraged and to melt with fear. We don't need those kind of leaders. We need leaders who are focused on uh, winning the battle, not being ready to give up and lose the battle. So this is, a, this is exactly what happened uh, with Joshua. So he said, I followed my God fully. So Caleb... Numbers 14.24, followed the Lord fully. Joshua followed the Lord fully. And so it goes on to say in verse 9, So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, that is, to Caleb and Joshua, because you have followed my God fully. So there's the condition. Uh, in Realization of inheritance is on the condition of, of obedience. And this takes us to a full understanding of why uh, Israel realized uh, the, that generation failed. They all lost that inheritance, including Miriam and Aaron and, and Moses. Only Joshua and Caleb followed the Lord uh, fully. We also have passages that indicate a, a, a loss of blessing. And this, uh, one passage indicating this, that you can forfeit your inheritance rights, was the case of Reuben. Reuben, who was Jacob's firstborn, lost his inheritance rights, according to First Chronicles 5.1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to birthright. So he lost his inheritance because of his uh, disobedience, because of his sin. 
So we learn from these passages that realization of the inheritance is based on obedience. Justification is a free gift by faith alone in Christ alone, but inheritance that goes beyond the inheritance common to every believer, the rewards are based on obedience. Looking at some of the passages in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.18 says, And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee. Implication, if you don't do right, it won't go well with you. Do right, and it will go well with you, and you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore unto your fathers. What is this saying? What this is saying is, and I just realized that I changed, I was looking something up, and I changed the text I was using to copy from to the King James Version, and I'm reading a couple of these going, well, wait a minute, that sounds King James-ish, not New King James. So that's what, that's why some of these verses sound a little more antiquated. Okay. So what what happened here is that Moses is talking to the conquest generation before this is his last words to them before he goes up on Mount Nebo and before they cross over the Jordan into the land and he says uh you have to do what's right and good in the sight of the Lord and then you will possess the land. So possession of the land's based on obedience. Deuteronomy 11:22 for if you shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you to do to do them to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to cleave unto him. Then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you, and you shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. It's conditioned upon uh, obedience, and if you're disobedient, you won't dispossess these nations. Verse 24 says, Every place on the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours from the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the uttermost sea shall your coast be. The, the potential was that they would realize the full control of the promised land, but they didn't because of disobedience. They conquered some areas, they partially conquered other areas, and then if you're familiar with Joshua and Judges, they just completely compromised, some of the tribes did, and they, like Dan, they never possessed uh, their inheritance down along the coast, and several generations later they had to send out a a search team to find a place where they were, where they could move where the Canaanites weren't so strong, and they found a place up in the north called Laish, and the whole tribe moved up there and conquered uh, conquered Laish. Laish, Deuteronomy nineteen eight and following. And if the Lord thy God enlarge thy coast as he has sworn unto thy fathers. Now notice this language, enlarge thy coast. He's talking to them about expanding their real estate rights. Now, I don't know. How many of you all remember this garbagey little book that came out called The Prayer of Jabez about 10 or 12 years ago that got a lot of popularity? And and I remember there was a guy, Gary, somebody up uh, up in... Um, a pastor up in Iowa said, wrote a little refutation of it, in, and the title of it was, I, Lord, I just wanted more land, Jabez. And when you look at the prayer, that's what Jabez wanted. He prayed to the Lord to enlarge his inheritance. He wanted more land. He wanted to be able to exploit what God had given him uh, to the max. He wasn't looking for prosperity. He wasn't asking for more money or more health and all these other things that came across in in that little book. It was so disappointing uh, that that, uh, uh, Wilkinson wrote that book. It was such a departure from everything that he had 
done before in his ministry with uh, uh, with Walk Through the Bible Ministries and his heritage from Dallas Seminary. So uh, Moses says, if the Lord your God enlarge your coast, that's that idea, just give you more land. Uh, as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land which he promised to give unto your fathers, if you shall keep all these commandments to do them, see, it's predicated upon obedience. Inheritance, realization of our full inheritance, means walking in obedience to the Lord. That's not legalism. There are some people who think that if you talk, start talking about the fact that you need to obey the Lord to realize blessing, that that's legalism. That's biblical. It's not legalism. It is recognizing the fact that if you don't develop the capacity to enjoy and utilize the prosperity that God gives you, it will destroy you. And God is not going to give you those blessings unless you develop the capacity to enjoy them and to use them correctly. It's like you may have a lot of money and uh, you're extremely wealthy and you have a son who's the apple of your eye and you want to give him a classic uh, Corvette for his, uh, for, his, uh, for, for his pleasure. And so you buy it for him. You go out and you buy like a 1960 Corvette, and you have it all set aside for him, but you don't give him the keys when he's six years old. You may not even give him the keys when he's 16 or 26 years old because he may not have the capacity to do anything but wrap it around a tree. You wait until he has reached a maturity so that he can use it responsibly. And that's not legalism. That's just wisdom. And God doesn't distribute our um, many of our temporal blessings unless we grow to maturity so that we can properly use them. And if we don't, then like Moses, we're going to lose those, uh, those temporal blessings and maybe eternal blessings. Now, the sixth point, that was all point five. The sixth point is the possession of the land, therefore, was conditioned on obedience. It was merited. Therefore, as a possession, it could be lost. Now, we can go back to Genesis, um, for example, in Genesis 17, 14, uh, uh, Abraham is warned that an uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. So if they didn't follow the law of circumcision, which is related to the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic covenant, then uh, they would be removed from the land, cut off from their people. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, 15... I mean, Deuteronomy 28.1. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. See, that's the first half of the chapter. The rest of the chapter details all the ways God's going to judge them if they're disobedient. We often go to Leviticus 26, and we go to the last half of Leviticus 28 to talk about the five cycles of discipline. But the flip side of the five cycles of discipline are the, are the blessings. The five cycles of discipline, God says, if you're disobedient, I'm going to go th- take you through these series of different judgments on, on your nation. Well, that's no more legalistic than the first half, which is if you obey me, then I will uh, increase you in the land and give you additional blessings. Another passage... Uh, uh, all indicates that we can we can lose that inheritance 
is a passage that comes at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem and the defeat of Judea, uh, Judah uh, in 586 B.C. In Lamentations 5.2, Jeremiah says that our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our homes to foreigners. Inheritance can be lost. They were removed from the land under the fifth cycle of discipline because of their disobedience to God. So inheritance can be lost, again, just as we saw with Moses. All right, the seventh point. Seventh point states that though not all have an inheritance in the land, all have God as their inheritance and possession. This is related to the Mosaic Law, that that everyone had some kind of inheritance but not everyone had a possession of land. So we see in um, Psalm seventy-three twenty-six, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now that word for portion, helic, is like the word miros in the New Testament. It means that, that share in your inheritance. So he is saying God is my inheritance forever. Uh, Psalm 119, 57, the Lord is my portion. That's that same word again. I have promised to keep thy words. The Lord is my inheritance. Psalm 142, verse 5, I cried out to thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge, my portion. That is my inheritance in the land of the living. Then we have passages such as as, um, Deuteronomy 18, 2. Therefore they, that is the priests and the Levites, that whole tribe, had no land possession in, in the promised land. All the other tribes were given land, but not the priests and the Levites. So therefore, God says in Deuteronomy 18.2, the priests and the Levites shall have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance. So that's that one category of inheritance, the Lord, as, as he said to them. So we have this emphasis on the fact that there's two things going on under the law in Israel that is the precedent, the background for understanding what I'm saying when we get to the New Testament. There, Everyone has an inheritance, but not everyone enjoys ownership of land and land rights within the land. So you have the inheritance of God, which we'll see in Romans 8 is called heirs of God, and then you have those who have uh, additional rights and privileges and ownership in the land, and that's what we'll see under the category of joint heirs with Christ for those who suffer with him uh, in the New Testament. But under point 8, let's turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and we're going to do just a quick review of what happens with the prodigal son. This is where we'll wrap up. Now, I'm not going to give you a full bore uh, ex- exposition of this. There, chapter 15 is a great chapter. And chapter 15 has been misunderstood by some people. And even among some Dallas Seminary professors, there were different views. Uh, some people took the view that, that when you see these three categories, you have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, that, that they, they understood the concept of lost in a soteriological sense that someone who was lost is someone who wasn't saved. But that's not true because the person who, the shepherd who lost the sheep, owned the sheep. It's already his. The sheep just wandered off course and got lost. 
not unsaved, just because he's still owned by the shepherd. The lost coin by the woman who loses a coin, the woman already owned the coin. It was her possession. You know, all all of these, the the shepherd, the, the woman, all represent God, and the lost item, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, all relate to a, a, what happens when a believer wanders off course and God's care and concern for even the disobedient believer. So you have this parable that's told about this man who has two sons, and one son is very obedient and responsible, but the younger son comes to his father in verse 12 and says, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, the word for portion there is the Greek word meros, which we've studied many times before. It's the same word that's used when Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you will have no meros with me. You'll have no portion of inheritance with me. You will invalidate your inheritance if I don't get to cleanse you on a regular basis. That's related to 1 John 1, 9, cleansing. That's the key word, by the way, in 1 John 1, 9, is not to confess but to be cleansed. And so this man wants his inheritance. What does he do? He, he takes all of his inheritance. He cashes out at that point in his life, takes what's his, puts it in the bank, heads off, and he squanders it all. He loses everything. He wastes it on uh, wild living, wild women, and whatever his pleasures are and wakes up one day, and he is living in a land where there's a famine, and he doesn't have any money or resources, and so he's down. The best job he can get is feeding the pigs, and all he can eat is what he feeds the pigs. But the point that we're saying is he's lost his inheritance. Now, when he comes to his senses and thinks that his father's servants are fed better than he is, he decides he's going to go home. And he goes home, and we're all familiar with the story. As he comes home to his father, his father hears that he's coming, runs out of the house, wraps his arm around him. He's so excited, so joyful that his son, who he thought was lost, has returned to him, and he throws just a huge party for him. And he's welcomed back into the family, and he's going to be able to work with the family and all these other things. But guess what? The money that he spent, the money that he lost is gone. He'll never get it back. He squandered his inheritance. Is he still his father's sons? He sure is. Is he forgiven? He sure is. But there has been a loss of what he could have had and what would have been his if he had not uh, not squandered it. And that's what we have when we get, get down into verses uh, uh, 12, 13, and let's just look at 17 and 18. He says, uh, that's where he has his, his turnaround. He says, I'll rise and go to him and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. That's confession of sin. So he he turns back, and there's recovery, but he's lost opportunity. So there's lost privilege, lost potential, lost, lost opportunity, and he's lost that. So next time we're going to come back and just wrap up. Uh, I think I can go through these pretty quick. Let's do these real fast. Ninth point, inheritance is related to rewards. For what's earned for service, where salvation's a free gift. Key passage for this is Colossians 3.24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. See, the reward of your inheritance is related to Christian service. It's not related to trusting in Christ for Savior. That's a free gift. Tenth point, our inheritance is based on adoption and sonship, 
though inheritance itself uh, is related to positional truth. Now, key verse for this, two different kinds of inheritance is Romans 8, 16, and 17, and it's important to understand the punctuation there. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Every person who believes in Jesus Christ is a child of God and has certain privileges. And if children, Paul goes on to say, heirs also. And then he lists two categories of heirship, but the way it's punctuated with a comma after heirs also and then a comma after Christ makes it look as if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ are synonymous. Now, this is important. We have to understand where the commas belong because there weren't any commas in the original Greek text. So we have to understand how to properly punctuate it because if you punctuate it wrong, you're going to have wrong doctrine. I've always loved this ever since I ran across this years ago. You have a sentence, a woman without her man is nothing. Where do you put the commas? Well, if you put your commas like the first example, what you're saying is a woman uh, uh, without her Man is nothing. So basically what that sentence says is man is nothing without a woman. If you move the commas to where you only have one comma after man, then it's saying that a woman is nothing. A woman without her man is nothing. So the commas change it from a statement about man being nothing to a statement about woman being nothing just depends on where you put the commas. So the whole meaning of the sentence shifts on the basis of commas. So punctuation is important, and a punctuation is based upon how an interpreter understands the meaning of the verse. And so it's been just tradition to punctuate it the way we have it. It should be punctuated like this. If children, heirs also, heirs of God, comma, that's the first category for every believer, and fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with him, comma. That's the second category. And fellow heirs is conditioned upon suffering with him. Now, Paul says in, in, in 2 Timothy that all who desire to live, uh, or 1 Timothy 4, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. That's suffering. Now, that persecution may be just general persecution and difficulty because we're in the devil's world and we're in the cosmic system, or it may be more focused. It may be more targeted. But the point is that if we're going to grow as believers, we're going to encounter suffering, opposition, difficulty, and as we handle it by the Word of God, we're going to grow and mature and develop our inheritance that we'll realize at the judgment seat of Christ. So, two categories, one category for every believer and one for those who are joint heirs if they suffer with Christ. Last point, heirship is related to hope. And that's the verse I pointed out at the beginning in Titus 3.7, that having been justified by his grace, that's something that's already occurred in the past, we should or we might become, there's a potential there, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the issue is, are we willing to live to develop our inheritance? Or are we just living just out of our own pleasure because we are glad that we're going to spend eternity in heaven? Or are we going to pursue realization of all of the inheritance rights that God has already set aside for us, potentially, 
But if we're not obedient, then we don't realize those rights. We'll come back and develop this within the context of First Peter next time. Father, thank you for the fact that you have made these things so clear to us that salvation is free, but you have incentives for us. You've incentivized the Christian life through these various rewards and crowns and, and other things that are ours conditioned upon obedience, conditioned upon walking by the Spirit, walking in the truth, walking in the light, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Challenge us that, that we need to live for him. We need to grow and mature, not just to rest or relax on what's been, what we have, but to press on to spiritual maturity that we may fully glorify you in every area of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.